Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And today I'm continuing my discussion with Larry Swedro, who is head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his episode and his story in episode 645. Larry deeply understands the world of academic research about investing, especially risk. And today we are going to discuss two chapters from his book, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. We're going to be talking about mistake 22. Do you confuse great companies with high return investments? And 23, do you understand how the price paid affects returns? <laughs> Larry, take it away. Yeah, well, if you ask most investors, would they rather have owned companies that have had average return on assets, say of roughly 9%, or would you rather own companies that have had average return on assets, say 4%, and those same companies that had the higher return on assets also had higher growth rate in earnings, much higher than the growth rate in earnings of the companies with, say, roughly 4% return on assets. So which group of stocks, asset A the, or group A, the higher returning on assets and the faster growth in earnings, or the other group, do you think like 99% of investors would choose? High return, fast growth. Right. And the me. logic is these are the great companies by definition, right? Because they've had higher return on assets, so greater return and capital, they grow their earnings faster as well. But that makes a fundamental mistake and it shows a lack of understanding of how markets work. And the, the great way to think about it, as we talked about in an earlier episode, is to use an analogy to sports. Because if you think about it that way, it ignores the fact that what you know, everyone else knows, <laughs> and it has to already be built into prices. So let's think about, let's say you're, if you're a soccer fan, so everyone around the world, you know, it's an mm. international sport now. If Barca, Lona's team, one of the best teams, you know, almost every year, is playing the St. Louis MSL team, it doesn't take a genius to know they could play 100 times and Barca literally would virtually be guaranteed to win 100 of those times, right? Think we could, right? But the problem is you can't bet on Barcelona to win unless one of two things is happening. You might have to give 50 to one odds mm -hmm. or 100 to one odds, or you might have to spot three goals or, you know, or something along those lines where that goal spread or the odds actually equalize the risk of betting on either team, mm -hmm. right? And that's why we don't know people who get rich betting on sports, because it's often easy to identify the better team. But the point spread or the odds equalize the risk of winning the game. And that's what happens with stocks. So let's help everybody but with a, an example that I think can be more related to them. So I'll ask you, Andrew, if you had a choice in this imaginary world we're gonna create, that you could buy a brand new office building, state of the art, okay? 
right? And you could plop it right onto the most prime piece of real estate in maybe the hottest city in the country for growth. Let's call it Austin, Texas, maybe, Mm -hmm. where a lot of people are moving. Brand new building, and you would have to pay $10 million to buy that building. You know, the rents are going to, you know, they're depressed from where they were, say, three years ago, because offers, but, you know, you would still have to pay $10 million for that building. Let's say you could also buy that exact same building in the worst slum in Detroit, where the murder rate is high, but now you might have to also pay $10 million. Would you buy that building? Which one are you going to buy? It's interesting because we're getting this analysis in San Francisco right now. I was just looking at prices of buildings that have absolutely, (laughs) you know, now those aren't new buildings, as you're saying. But generally, you know, so one of the things that that you think about is that when investing, we oftentimes get trapped in going for the most sexiest, most kind of well-known places because we think, oh, it's hot there. But the problem is, Am I getting that building in Austin, Texas, 10 years before the peak of the market? Or am I getting that at the peak of the market? Right. So in this case, though, just to be very specific, you're going to have to choose. You're going to spend $10 million on either building. Do you want the, the same building, identical, but I think you can guess where the rents will be higher. Do you want to buy the one in Austin or do you want to buy the one in Detroit? Ultimately, I want the one that's got the highest rents, hopefully. So, right, because you're paying the same price, right? Yep. yep. So, so that awesome. world can't exist mm. where the price of the building is the same as the price of, in Austin as the same as the one in Detroit. So let's say you say to me, hey, Larry, you're my financial analyst here. You're my advisor. But I'm really this great, or meaning you, you're this great expert on real estate, and you could, you're good at projecting real estate revenues. And you say to me, Larry, I think based on the rents today, I'm going to get 50 bucks a square foot on this building, and I think rents are going to increase by X and over the life. And based on that, if I pay 10 million for that building, I get a 10% return. Okay, then you say, Larry, I really think this building in Detroit is a good opportunity The the city's turning around. I think while, you know, while rents are only 12 bucks a square foot now, rents are going to start to go up. And Larry, I could buy the building today for two million. Okay, so you say, Larry, what rate of return would I get if I only paid two million and my projections are right? Now, clearly, the great property is Austin. The weaker one is the one in in Detroit. Detroit. But in this case, coincidentally, they both give you an estimated return of 10%. Neither is guaranteed, of course. We don't know what the future holds, even you brilliant real estate analysts. Mm. But if those were the numbers... Which would you rather buy, given that they both have a 10% expected return? Well, technically, I would be I would choose either one of them if they both had an expected 10% return. No, that's not true. Okay. That's not the right or, answer. They, to me, that's the technical right answer. No, 
not the right answer because yeah. that's looking at only the return. What did you miss, Andrew, when you thought of it? Do you, when the you risk. make investments, you have to, th so which, they both have the same return, but which one would you have a higher confidence that your projection is right? Which one is safer? The one with the lower investment amount. No, it's the one. I got this where all you, wrong, Larry. That yeah, well, it's the one that you have more confidence in the dispersion of outcomes. Okay, and it's more likely that the dispersion of outcomes in Austin will be tighter, and the the, the dispersion. You maybe you get lucky and things turn around in Detroit, and you get a great return, mm. and maybe the city goes bust and you're bankrupt and you lose it. So. When you have the same expected return, you should choose the safer investment. To make it more clear, let's say you could buy a treasury bond with a 5% yield or a general motors bond with a 5% yield. Which are you going to buy? You're always going to go with treasury because the outcome is so much more certain than the right. general motors. So you have bond. to look at the risk and the return. Okay. So... We're going to buy the safer investment unless the expected return from the worse investment is much higher to compensate us for the extra risk. So that world that I gave you where the expected return in Austin was 10% and the expected return in Detroit was 10%, that world can't exist. Mm. No rational investor would buy the building in Detroit in the same way no rational investor would buy the GM bond if it yielded the same as the government bond. You might have to pay 8% or 9% before you would take that risk. And mm. the bigger the risk, the higher that risk premium, okay? And but now let's change it. And now you only have to pay 1 million. And so the rate of return expected, but not guaranteed, of course, has gone from 10% to 20%. And the one in Austin is 10%. Expected, but not guaranteed. Now, which building would you rather buy? So now you're getting more interested in the Detroit building. You would, but let's say you're a widow living on a pension. And this property- I can't afford the possible negative distribute, you know, the negative worst case. All right. So there's no right answer. They both are good investments. Right. And if you're a risk taker, you might prefer the Detroit building. If you're very conservative, you might prefer the Austin building. And if you're somewhere in between, you might buy a small percentage of each mm -hmm. distributing your risk. Okay. So here's the logic coming back to our companies. The companies... And, and let's help it this way. Let's make the Austin building Google and the Detroit building General Motors. Well, you don't want to buy the, you know, you don't know which is the better buy if the risk adjustment returns are similar. But it must be that the GM company and that GM building or the, has to have a higher expected return. And when you look at the returns of those groups I gave you, the returns to the stocks that had a 9% return on asset and much faster growth of earnings, those were growth stocks mm. that had very high PEs on average. So the price you paid 
to get that return on assets and the growth in earnings was very high. And therefore, the returns you earned by owning the stock were actually quite a bit lower, about 3.5% lower than the returns of the non-glamorous companies. Because the market is pricing for risk. And that's what people fail to understand. You have to separate the two. Now, the fact that these value companies had lower earnings, lower growth in earnings, lower return on their assets, that didn't make them bad investments. It just made them less glamorous, less attractive companies. But because of that, the market price for their risk, creating a risk premium. And for those investors who had the discipline to stay the cost and build diversified portfolios, because some of them go bankrupt and others turn around and do real well. And by the way, the same thing is also true of growth stocks. Some of them do great and others become Eastman Kodak or Polaroid or GE, and they go bankrupt. So you never want to put all your eggs in one basket. But the point of the story is this, that when you identify a great company, that's only one bit of the story. You have to ask yourself, what's the price you're paying? What do I know that the market doesn't know? And if the answer is nothing, which it almost certainly is, then the price already reflects all that great information, which means likely the P-E ratio is high, and that means the expected return in general has been lower. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's such a challenge because some people, they see that and they think, well, I'm going to protect myself by buying these value stocks that are just, I'm going to, I'm not going to get messed up on price. I'm going to buy at low price. So I think I'm getting some benefit from that. But then if you don't diversify that value portfolio, you know, you're going to get some crap in there that's just going to fall apart. You're going to lose a lot. But that brings us to that, you know, this concept really is kind of value and growth, or let's say value, you know, growth is a little bit different in that it's looking at, you know, earnings growth and all that. But what we're talking about really is return from dividend and return from the cash flow generated from the business versus return from the price. And so it's a tough one because I know that I've had um, guests on that they got burnt from buying high price stock. And they thought it was a good company, but it was just expensive timing. And then they shift to, oh, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to buy cheap stocks because I'm never going to get burned on price again. <laughs> and it's, they get flung around. Well, yeah, here's the thing that the research shows. Value stocks in general have outperformed, let's call it three and a half percent a year on average. Okay. However, a big chunk of that or some significant portion of the growth underperformance has come from growth companies that are high investment, which tends to be growth companies, right? Mm -hmm. But low profitability. Think of all the story stocks, like the battery companies, you know, that came public and raised lots of cash. So they're growing rapidly, but don't have earnings, right? All right lots of small companies are story stocks and they raise capital and don't have earnings, right? Well, if you look at the data, 
small growth stocks with high investment and low profitability over the long term have underperformed treasury bills. And yet people love to buy these, what I call lottery stocks, because you do have the chance that they become the next Google or the next Apple or the next Amazon. But the vast majority of them end up you know, disappearing or getting very poor results, which means that if you're going to buy growth stocks or small stocks, either case, you want to make sure that you're screening out the ones with high investment but low profitability, right? If they just have low profitability, that may not be too bad because they're not burning cash with high investment and maybe they have the ability to turn around. But the evidence also shows that if you buy the highest returns have been to value companies that are more profitable. And so if you screen for those two things over the long term, that's been the best. And guess who? Can you think of one investor who has tended to buy those kinds of stocks? Besides Peter Lynch, maybe Warren Buffett? Yeah, well, Peter Lynch tended to buy more he did growth, a lot of growth. Yeah, that were profitable. He avoided the junk. But Warren Buffett, you know, has tended to buy cheaper companies that were also profitable, generated cash flow, et cetera. So. And so for the typical person who's, let's say they've built up a portfolio of a million dollars in in a passive or very, you know, a very diversified strategy, and they say, look, Larry, I know I may not be able to beat the market picking stocks, and I'm only going to take 10% of my wealth, but I just really love analyzing stocks and looking at the numbers. And, you know, it feels like I'm going to the racetrack <laughs> or whatever, but I want to do it. What would be the advice of where you would tell them, okay, if you've got to do it, focus in on low. That's what I gave you. Yep. Low high stocks with relatively low PEs have relatively high cash flow to the price, have low debt, little leverage. So that reduces the risks as well. I think if you have one single metric you want to look at, although many are roughly equally good, mm. I think the best. One is cash flow to enterprise value. All right. That's good. And that's a good little place for some people to start. Now, let's look at mistake 23, which we kind of, these mistakes go kind of hand in hand, but that one is, do you understand how the price paid affects the return? We've been talking about kind of both of these things, but is there more that you would add there? Yeah. So I think the way to think about this in a way to be most helpful is People look at returns, let's say, of stocks from 95 through 99, all right? Mm -hmm. And what stocks did the best? And they were the growth companies, the story stocks, the dot-coms, et cetera, all right? And what people didn't realize is that though they outperformed not because their earnings were growing that much faster, but because their prices we're going up and up and up. And so recency bias led them to buy more, right? But if when the prices are going up faster than the earnings, what does that tell you about the expected future return? It's You're paying down. more for the same earnings and therefore your expected return is now lower. 
And what's the reverse is true on the other side. Mm. If prices are going down for whatever reasons, sentiment, risk, but the earnings haven't fallen, then the expected return is now higher, right? The same thing happened, by the way, to value stocks, uh, again, in the period from late 16 through late 20, there was a four-year period where growth far outperformed and everyone was jumping, all the retail investors, on the growth stocks. Mm. But none of them, I'm willing to bet, was looking at the underlying fundamentals. And growth company earnings did not grow faster than expected. They grow faster than value, but not faster than it was already built into the price. So let's just make this up. They'll say, you know, we think growth companies grow at 12% a year and value at five. Well, growth grow at 12 and let's say value grew at five. But growth stocks went up, you know, doubled and value stocks didn't go up at all. Mm. So what happened is the price you were paying for that same growth in earnings went way up. So your future expected returns collapsed. You have to make sure you're evaluating the price you're paying relative to the expected cash flows, because that's going to tell you what the discount rate the market is applying, which is your expected return. So a simple way to look at it, if my memory serves here, a study was done a while ago, so the data may be not all-inclusive. But if you bought stocks when the PE was more than 22, you got a 5% return on average. Now, you still may have a good year. PEs were well over 22 and 97 and 8 and 9 because the market had gone way up and those PEs were higher. Mm. But the next 10 years were awful. Growth stocks over the next 13 years underperformed T-bills. <laughs> so, but people ignored that. On the other hand, value stock PEs remain pretty much unchanged. And so the next 12 years was the biggest outperformance of value in history. And when you buy stocks when the PE is under 10, the return has been something like 16 or 17%. Mm. So, so does that mean- pay matters. If Let's just imagine that we created a, a chart that was taking the market PE and breaking it into quintiles. So we've got five different groupings of periods of time when the PE was super high and periods of time when the PE was super low. And if we use that as a guide, and let's say that we are doing, let's just keep it simple by saying that person is contributing to a passive fund on a monthly basis. And they got a long-term plan and it's very simple. They're not going to change what they're investing in, but mm -hmm. they're going to change the amount they're investing based upon what quintile it's in. And the only quintiles that let's say maybe matter is the highest, most expensive quintile or the lowest, cheapest quintile. If they said, I'm going to double up my contributions for the time when that this chart is saying that the market is cheap and I'm going to cut in half my contributions when it looks like the market's in that expensive quintile. Would that work? Here's the thing. Let's see if this is helpful. Mm. There's something called the Cape 10. The Cape 10 is the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. Okay. Yep. And the idea which Warren Buffett has used this, 
Benjamin Graham talked about this. Oh, he didn't call it the Cape 10. Right. He argued you should smooth earnings because in an economic boom, earnings will be higher than sustainable. And in a recession, they'll be lower than they will be over the long term. So if you take an average, Robert Schiller made this famous when he decided on the Cape 10. Turns out if you use the Cape 7, 8, 6, or 9, it makes no difference. The results are identical. And here's the thing. If you break them into deciles, okay, there's a perfect correlation, monotonic increase from when the Cape 10 is in the highest decile. So the average is about 33. The real return was under 1% to stocks. And then it goes up in the next decile to 2.5, then 2.7, then 5.0, then 5.4, Okay. So that's telling you the cheaper it is, the higher the return has been in the long term. But of course, in any one, two or three year period, it's noise. Mm. As I told you, 98 and 99, you know, you had great returns. It's the dispersion is still wide. So when prices are low, you can still get bad returns. And when prices are high, you can still get good returns. But the the general probability, the dispersion is moving in the same direction. So at the highest Cape 10, the worst returns are the worst and the best returns are lower than the best returns in every decile. And the worst returns are the worst than the worst returns in every decile. So the curve as prices go down and you move up the deciles, everything is shifting to the right. But within that, there's still a wide dispersion. So Mm. let me give you an example of that. So in the 10th decile, the worst return was minus six, but the best return was plus six. Now, that's a real return, not just a nominal mm. return. But in the ten, in the best decile, when you're buying cheapest, you're at the worst return was still plus 4.2 real and 17.10 was the best. So I would tell you the best strategy should be don't try to time it. Rebalance. Which means when you do well and the PEs are going up, you're going to put less into equities and more into bonds. You may Mm. even sell some stocks to buy bonds. And when the PEs are low because stocks have done poorly, you'll put more money into stocks or even sell bonds to buy stocks. And rebalancing will give you historically a diversification benefit. So the rebalancing would serve the function of trying to make some kind of quintile chart, like I said, or the chart you said. And, and just it would say, force you to do the opposite of what most people do, which is dumbly chasing returns. And they ignore the historical evidence. They ignore the fact that typically over the longer term, prices tend to revert to some mean returns tend to revert to some mean. We don't know what that mean is exactly. We know what it was in the past. We don't know what the future mean will be. But there is definitely some reversion over time. 
Mm. I think the the important message out of this, one of the important messages, the concept of dispersion, which you were explaining about, particularly about the building in Detroit and a building in Austin and dispersion of the potential outcomes. And for the viewers or the listeners out there, you know, if you take your hand and you spread your fingers, you get kind of a fan diagram of many different potential outcomes at the terminal period that you could achieve. And we're going to calculate an average of those, but that does just because we've calculated an average doesn't mean that those other possibilities aren't there. They're very much real. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a problem and investors engage in resulting. (laughs) They look at the data and say, well, that was a good or a bad investment based on what happened ignoring the fact that you didn't know what was going to happen and (laughs) other outcomes were certainly possible. Alternate universes can show up, right? Let me give you one other topic before we end here Mm. that I think is important related to this. And I just wrote, I think, a really important piece on Michael Kitsis's website. It's kitces.com. It's called The Big Market Delusion and related specifically to electronic vehicles. And this is a pattern historically. So what happened, for example, now is people got all excited about EVs, right? And they assumed that, you know, Tesla's has been a great company. So they buy all the story stocks in this EV world. Now, all of them, can't succeed and become Teslas and grow earnings that quickly. It's in order for Tesla to justify its very high PE ratio, it has to grow earnings, I don't know, whatever the number is, 30 or 40 or 50% a year. Mm. If you succeed and only grow earnings 10% a year, investors are going to get killed because the price is reflecting a much higher. And it's literally impossible for every EV company to grow earnings 50% a year or 30. They would become the whole economy of the world in 20 or whatever, right? Mm. And the same thing was true in the dot-com era and the biotech. And not every company succeeds. You're now talking about green energy. Well, you're now seeing a lot of these green companies going bankrupt Mm. because they're over too much capital came in chasing and they just aren't in return. And some of the EV stocks have already gone bankrupt, right? And so you get, want to avoid getting caught up in the delusion of investing in the story. Maybe it's okay to f- try to pick the great one company, but the problem is, what if you're wrong? The odds are you could get wiped out totally. And there's no even guarantee that Tesla will be the winner there. As I said, it may succeed, right? Or it may not. I mean, right Mm. now you have the Chinese saying, I mean, basically they could tomorrow say, Tesla, you're done in China. You can't produce here. We're going to just shut you out. Nothing could stop. Or they could tell Chinese, you can't buy a Tesla. You have to buy a Chinese. And we don't know what can happen. And right now, I think the Chinese EV manufacturer is threatening or closing in on Tesla as the largest manufacturer of EVs in the world. Mm. So we don't know what's going to happen. I'm not saying don't buy Tesla, although I wouldn't buy any individual stock for that reason. 
So my advice is if you can't resist the temptation, my first advice is get another life. <laughs> and there are better <laughs> things to do with your time, like spend more time with your wife or friends or, you know, donate that time to charity, do some good. But, you know, if that's your personal hobby, you enjoy it, take one or 2% of your money, try to pick stocks with have low relative prices, good cash flow, low operating leverage, so they don't get hammered in a recession, low financial leverage as well. In effect, the kind of stocks that Warren Buffett bought, yep. and you're likely to do reasonably well. In fact, the odds are you'll outperform the market because you're buying cheap stocks relative to the market, and that's what has worked historically mm. over the long term. But I haven't bought an individual stock in 30 years or more. And I used to be a stock market junkie, that guy who watched Louis Rukeyser every Friday night. My dad was a junkie. I just learned when I hit a winner, which my first big stock pick made like 13 times what I paid for it. But that just made me overconfident and confusing <laughs> skill and luck. Um, uh, I eventually figured out what the winning strategy is by reading the research. Well, I think the articles avoid getting caught up in big market delusions, the case study of yeah. electric vehicles. Yeah, and I'll have a link to that for those people that want to want to read it. I just it's have a one really last thing. important article, I think. Yeah. I want to have one last thing. I just wanted to share a story, Larry, when I was a pretty experienced analyst coming out of Thailand and I went to New York and sat down with some really bright, you know, hedge fund guys and I'm telling them about the banking sector in Thailand at that time, which is what I was covering. And the guy got kind of caught up on the fact that I was expecting earnings in my model. I had said earnings growth of, I don't know what it was, let's say 7% every year for the next five years. And he said to me, how can it possibly be, you know, next year, it could be this next year, it could be that, you know? And so I said to him, I said, well, actually I have another chart, but I didn't bring it. And I just thought I didn't need to bring it, but I can just draw it right here because he saw a straight line of let's say 7% growth each year. And I just said, well, actually in this year, I think it's going to be 9%. And this year I thought the next year, I thought it was going to be 3%. And then by the time I got to the fifth year, I was like, and it's going to be 15 in the fifth year. So I showed each actual item above and below that 5% that I chose. And of course, then he said, how can you possibly predict the fifth year is going to be 15%, <laughs> right? Which I, I, you know, I kind of set it up this way. And then I said, well, now you got me both ways. First, you're complaining that I was taking a fixed number. And now that I should be forecasting each individual year, now I've shown you a year and now you said you're not satisfied with that. But I, what I try to do is that I showed him, I went to each point that I highlighted for each of those years, and I showed him that there was an equal distance between those points. If you summed up the distance between those points and the center point, and that, you know, what I was trying to show him that just because I'm giving you an average of 7% per year for five years, an average doesn't ignore that there's dispersion. It's coming from dispersion, but sometimes we use an average to simplify what we're trying to say. And that's how I try to teach my students in my valuation masterclass yeah, a bit exactly about. Exactly right. What yeah. I tell people is, is this. The best estimate we have 
for future stock returns is to take, let's use the K-10 and invert it so you get an earnings yield. That's a st- It's only got a correlation of about 40% or so. Mm. That's because risk shows up. Yeah. And if risk is more than expected, because we get wars in the Middle East or oil embargoes or you know COVID and then inflation shocks, well, guess what happens? The risk premium goes up and returns are lower. And sometimes we get a perfect world and less risk shows up than expected, right? And then risk premiums go down and returns go up, okay? But that's the best estimate we have. So what does that tell us today? Roughly, the Cape 10, I think, is somewhere around 28 or something like that, which would tell us that the expected real return to stocks is probably, David, I'm going to guess, 3.5% in real terms. Okay? Now, if we think inflation is going to be 25 well, that tells me I think stocks will get 6 Mm. The mistake people make is the mistake, in effect, that you're in your story. That does not mean stocks are going to go up, go 6% a year. And the only right way to think about it is that 6% is the median of a very wide dispersion, like I showed you with the Cape 10 example, Mm. where if you bought stocks, when the Cape 10 was about its historical average over the last you know, 40 years or so of about 20, the real return average was five, but you needed a wide dispersion to incorporate all the actual outcomes. It was over, remember, these are 10-year periods now. The worst return was 9% a year worse than the average or minus 4% a year real negative return over 10 years. And the best return was 18.5% real, 8.5% more, or 13.5% in real terms. Mm. That's a gap from minus 4 to plus 13.5. That's a 17.5% wide dispersion. And that's what you have to think about when you make a forecast for stock returns, a 6%. It may be, you know, you're going to end up with two and maybe you're going to end up with 20. And six is only the best guess we have. But you have to build a plan that can live with either of those outcomes. Well, we're going to wrap up there. And I think that that dispersion graphic of many, many different paths of outcomes is really a big takeaway for all of us to keep that in mind, even when you're talking about average, know that there is a dispersion of outcomes. And that's, as Larry has said, when risk shows up. Yeah, and by (laughs) the way, you shorten the horizon, the dispersion gets much wider, right? And any one year, the market may drop 40% and you expect it up six, so now the dispersion's much wider. Mm. Well, that was a great discussion, Larry, and I want to thank you for helping us to create, grow, and protect our wealth for listeners out there who want to keep up with all that Larry is doing, you can find him on Twitter at Larry Swedro and also on LinkedIn. And you're going to find that he is just prolific there. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.